0: Welcome to the Bulgarian History Podcast, Episode 89, The Mad King and the Mad Sultan. First, thanks to Bonistoff for increasing his pledge, and for listener Tim French for having time to meet up with me while he was visiting Sofia. As always, I really love meeting you listeners whenever you're in town or whenever I'm traveling somewhere abroad and can you know get in touch. So yeah, feel free to reach out. Uh, a quick note: I actually will be in Northern Virginia, my you know where I grew up, in the last half of October for a wedding. So if any listeners are in the D.C. Northern Virginia area and would like to meet up, just write me, send me an email. Facebook, whatever, you know, get in touch. And if there's enough of you, maybe I'll arrange like a whole meetup and things. It's always so much fun, so we'll see if there's enough of you to do it. So, getting into it. Last time, we started off by reviewing the more gradual changes that were happening as the 16th century transitioned into the 17th century. The Timar system for administration, military mustering, and tax collection was gradually falling apart as the central government took direct control of more lands and used tax farming to raise the funds needed to pay for a modern standing army. Then, in the narrative, we saw a surprise invasion by the Safavids make quick progress before dealing a crippling blow to the Ottoman army. In Europe, All three former vassal states were able to exert their independence from the Ottomans, even as rebellion in Transylvania created a state that was more independent from the Habsburgs and actually leaning slightly towards the Ottomans. As always, we still see this balancing act in these states between the Habsburgs, the Poles, and the Ottomans. Ultimately, though, the long Turkish war between the Ottomans and the Habsburgs finally ended, bringing peace and stability to the frontier. In Transylvania, we ended up with Gabriel Bathory, forcing the Diet, the kind of parliament, to elect him as prince. But Gabriel wanted to control Wallachia and Moldavia as well, just like Michael the Brave had. His first target was Radu Sherban of Wallachia. However, he was persuaded not to invade, and Radu ultimately swore fealty to him. But within months, the Voivoda of Moldavia had done the same. And yet, his luck only continued when in the following months, he also gained recognition from the Holy Roman Emperor and the Sultan. The conditions were there, and even though he actually couldn't seek the Hungarian crown, but still, he was exempt from Ottoman taxes for three years. He was in a great position. But just like that, you know, his position was secure, but he didn't really rule over a united state in the same way Michael the Brave had. But still, he was the undisputed Prince of Transylvania and received fealty and tribute from and Moldavia. Not bad. I'll also take a moment to point out how these years of war really changed the Ottoman relationship with these states. Uh, Suddenly the Ottomans had much less direct control and more sort of sphere of influence kind of uh, impact there. Now within Transylvania, Gabriel had mixed popularity. He angered many nobles by being a bit of a hard drinker who slept with their wives, all the classic stuff. But he did grant more rights to Orthodox priests, making him popular in that community. Still, It wasn't really a huge surprise when a man working on behalf of Catholic nobles tried to assassinate him in 1610. You could see it coming. Now, By that summer, he was already ready for his next move, and decided to renege on the deal with the Holy Roman Emperor Rudolf and seek to unite Hungary and Transylvania to unite their crowns with the help of the Ottomans, who would have been glad to see them as a new power under their influence balancing the Habsburgs in that region. To do this, he demanded money and soldiers from all of his vassals, including Wallachia and Moldavia. But ultimately, he got only a fraction of what he asked for, forcing him to negotiate with them instead. Once the negotiations were done, he wanted revenge on Wallachia in particular. He was furious about not getting the soldiers he asked for, and so he invaded over Radu and brutally pillaged the countryside. He then sent envoys to the Ottomans, proposing to invade Poland next, with Moldavia likely being a kind of waypoint on the way there. Even the Ottomans were actually taken aback by his actions and actually began to refer to Gabriel as the Mad King. I mean, the guy was trying to build this state, but, you know, he's demanding all these things. He's drinking, he's sleeping around, he's punishing his vassals. I mean, the guy's just intense. And,. Around this time, the early months of 1611, though still, Gabriel wasn't the only one being a bit crazed and running around and taking people's lands, there were things like that happening elsewhere. Now, Rudolf II had been Holy Roman Emperor for 36 years, but Bohemian Protestants were angry at his rule and wanted more religious freedoms. Remember, the Habsburgs were very Catholic. Despite some concessions to the Bohemian Protestants, it wasn't enough and they worked with his brother, Matthias, to overthrow him. Rudolf would die within months of being overthrown, and, well, that was it. Matthias was shortly afterwards elected Holy Roman Emperor himself. So, we have a new Holy Roman Emperor, but it remains to be seen what that's going to change. But for now, back to Gabriel the Mad King. Now, Sultan Ahmed ordered him to leave Balakia and appointed a new Voivoda to rule there, Now, again, obviously, the Ottomans kind of want Gabriel to be a bit stronger so he can counterbalance people in the region, but still, Wallachia is their territory, their vassal state at least, and they don't want it to be ravaged and pillaged because then it won't be able to provide the money and troops that the Ottomans want. So, Gabriel was furious, he didn't want the Ottomans butting in, but he knew there wasn't really much he could do. He had to stay on their good side if he was going to kind of combat the, uh, the Habsburgs, so he complied. Almost immediately, the deposed Voivoda Radu took control of the army, uh, an army of Cossacks and Moldavian mercenaries, and took back control in Wallachia. So it was on because, remember, Gabriel basically overthrew Radu and hated him. So Gabriel ordered his forces to gather and invade Wallachia a second time. But the nobles in Brasov, the nobles around Brasov rose up against Gabriel. They saw their chance. And Radu invaded, seeing that this kind of uprising gave him his own chance. And with these nobles at his side, Radu defeated Gabriel in July of 1611. But Gabriel had even bigger problems, because that new Holy Roman Emperor, Matthias, was mad as hell at him for his actions, and also invaded Transylvania. Just like that, the Habsburgs and Wallachian forces were invading from two sides, and managed to reach and lay siege to the Transylvanian capital, though they couldn't manage to take it. Gabriel, unsurprisingly, now sought Ottoman support because, well, what else could he do? As annoyed as the Ottomans were with him for making so much trouble for no damn good reason, well, they, on both sides, right? He was all the Ottomans had, and the Ottomans were all he had, so the Ottomans sent soldiers. Now, when their army arrived, it forced the Valachians to retreat, allowing the remaining Transylvanian forces to defeat the Habsburg force. Now, Gabriel, his plan was now to invade Habsburg-controlled Hungary, but the Ottomans refused to go along. They, this was enough, right? They, they wanted to keep Gabriel in power, but they weren't going to help him conquer new lands. And so a deal was reached. The Ottomans, for their part, wanted Gabriel gone. They were done with his BS. And so they agreed to replace him, just as Transylvania was descending into civil war. One man rose up against Gabriel on behalf of the Ottomans, but was defeated in battle and killed. Now, by this point, no doubt you've noticed that, well, to put it lightly, the whole situation's a damn mess. Emperor Matthias agreed at this point that, okay, we just want this over with, we want the war over with, we're done with all this chaos, and so he proposed that the rebels in Transylvania surrender to Gabriel, make peace end the war and negotiate some kind of a settlement but the ottomans were having none of it they saw this uh, clearly as an opportunity for the Habsburgs to win out and gain some more influence so this is a hard pass from them and so they their kind of position was they still wanted to replace gabriel and have gabriel's replacement continue to kind of fight and build a powerful client state for them but regardless Gabriel now decided to support the Habsburgs against the Ottomans because, well, he could see that uh, Ottoman support for him was gone and they wanted him replaced. It's it's the, more this chaos, right? Everyone has their one ally, their one way of gaining some power, and so everyone's perpetually kind of desperate in the region, and so you get this endless cycle of backstabbing, which no surprise, only gets worse, because somehow while all of this was going on, the Moldavians had been fighting the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth. Now, last we checked in on them, Moldavia was in an interesting situation. They were vassals to both Poland and the Ottomans. Well, that relationship finally broke down as their Voivoda, who had fought with the Ottomans against the Safavids, well-experienced commander then, who was anti-Polish pro-Ottoman, and many Moldavian nobles were... The opposite. And this led to war in 1612. With the help of the Ottomans and the Crimean Tatars, the Moldavian Voivoda was victorious. And within a year, this new Voivoda, Stefan II Tomsha, ended the war with Poland by pledging to be their vassal while keeping peace between them and the Ottomans. In other words, the status quo antebellum. So to recap there, you know you had the leader of v- v- Moldavia pro-Ottoman, the nobles pro-Polish. There's a bit of a civil war, but also a war with Poland. The the leader wins, but ultimately they kind of put back to the way it was before. Because really, Moldavia isn't currently in a position where it can resist either state. It can't get enough support from Poland to fully resist the Ottomans, or enough support from the Ottomans to fully resist Poland. And actually this worked for everyone, because Poland now sought a closer alliance with the Habsburgs against the Ottomans. Uh, having previously been a bit closer to the Ottomans to fight the Habsburgs, I know it's, it's Russian or, or was like musical chairs here, but everyone's looking to gain their advantage in their position, and I think this is actually an interesting and good point. Right, we look back, and it's so easy to see the Ottomans as just sort of this big evil force threatening Europe, which at times they you could argue they were. You know, those Europeans n- generally would only see the Ottomans in that light when it made sense as sort of a propaganda thing. But most of these European states, when it suited them, were willing to work with the Ottomans, right? We, so we've we seen the French do it. We've seen the Venetians do it. We've seen the Poles do it. Uh, we've even seen the Habsburgs do it in a limited way. And so it's, it's no real surprise that, you know, the Ottomans are just a, a regional power and everyone's trying to ne- fudge and negotiate their way to becoming more powerful themselves. So, by 1613, Wallachia and the Crimean Tatars were now helping to invade Transylvania, joined soon by Ottoman forces to overthrow the Mad King Gabriel. Gabriel withdrew and sought Hungarian Habsburg support and actually got it, but not enough. Really, at this point, the writing was on the wall, and the Transylvanian diet met and decided to dethrone Gabriel, instead electing the pro-Ottoman Gabriel Bethlen instead. Yes, I must severely apologize, another guy named Gabriel took over. It's confusing. Sorry. So the original Gabriel Bathory was hunted down and killed, and thus ended the reign of this particular Mad King. So, just to review there, Gabriel Bathory, Mad King, is dead, and the new guy running things is Gabriel Bethlen. Even their last names both start with B, just can't make it easy. Now, I want to cover something a little different, quick reverse back in time to 1608, about 5 years before this, just when this episode was beginning. Now, in 1608, rebel leaders of Montenegro and Herzegovina requested that the Duke of Savoy send an army to liberate the Balkans from the Ottomans in exchange for what they termed the Crown of Macedonia. Now, what the Crown of Macedonia was, who knows, but you know, Alexander the Great Connotations, et cetera, et cetera. It sounded good. And if you're a Europe, you know, Western European noble, that sounds cool. You'd like to be the king or the emperor of Macedonia. So they thought that would be a nice little carrot. And they actually also got some backing from the Pope. And so this is interesting, right? We saw all these rebellions throughout the Balkans fail, but those rebellions also were never able to get much outside support, even from the Habsburgs, even when the Habsburgs were actively at war with the Ottomans. So it's hard to say how the Ottomans might handle a proper Western European invasion into the Balkans. So it seemed like this was going to happen, but during the subsequent years, with all the chaos raging around the principalities, nothing really came of it. Ultimately, the operation would have required Spanish naval support, and it wasn't forthcoming. Remember, at this point, Spain was the major kind of rival to the Ottomans in the naval situation in the Mediterranean, and so they were the only ones who were going to be able or willing to kind of ferry an army that would be necessary to challenge the Ottomans to the Balkans. So, yeah, it didn't happen. And so the uprisings against the Ottomans in the Balkans were now well and truly over. But this really is, I think, an interesting point here, how... You know, because no single European power, even the Habsburgs, really had the strength to challenge the Ottomans on their own, as far as, I mean, you could win a limited regional war against them, but really, to reconquer the Balkans, you needed this kind of cooperation. And again, you know, it's not like all of Europe was united against the Ottomans. Everyone was in it for themselves. Everyone had their own goals. It's much like what we saw, you know, many episodes past in the Crusades, and so even when there's all these uprisings and the Ottomans are kind of weak and there's this great opportunity unless all the stars align and all the major players all agree at this moment, yeah, this is what we should do, then it's not going to happen. And so it didn't happen. Now, another quick note, back in 1612, the Ottomans renewed trade treaties with England, Venice, and France, as well as signing their first ever trade treaty with the Dutch Republic. Now, We're going to talk a bit more about the Mediterranean. We've seen this rivalry between the Spaniards and the Ottomans in the Mediterranean pass on over many, many decades. But this shows that the Ottomans are also trading. I mean, they're also making formal trade treaties with these faraway countries. And as we'll see shortly, you know, Ottoman ships and Ottoman supported ships uh, are going to make it out into the Atlantic and into very far flung places. And so... Although there's still some Christian Muslim conflict in the Mediterranean, it's still going on, on a low, low key kind of state, but trade is picking up in the Mediterranean and we're getting a little bit less conflict, a little more trade now. But still, the sea is a place of warfare. And in 1612, the Ottomans actually landed forces to try to capture the city of Messina in Sicily. But it was a complete failure with ships and soldiers being captured in large numbers. The Spanish, who controlled that area, retaliated by attacking an Ottoman castle in Greece. And upon hearing that an Ottoman fleet was on their way, they set themselves up to fight them. And the two forces engaged, and it was a complete Spanish victory, with many more Ottomans killed or captured, despite the Ottomans actually slightly outnumbering the Spaniards. So this is another reminder, right, that there's less conflict in the Mediterranean, but it's still happening a reminder that despite there's the fact that there's no formal war between Spain or the Habsburgs more broadly in the Ottomans, that these things are still happening. Uh, the Mediterranean can feel like a no man's land or sort of just a, a place where there's perpetual conflict, mostly because of all the privateers and raiding and you know, pirating that's going on. But it's also an interesting reminder that the Ottoman domination is really waning, right? That the Spaniards were able to score a huge victory, and there's going to be more of those against the Ottomans, whereas previously, the Ottomans were just knocking up win after win after win in battles like this in the Mediterranean. Okay, but switching gears again, what was happening with that Ottoman-Safavid war that had started six years ago, and, well, you know, the Safavids made all these major gains, so what's going on here? Peace, remember, was finally established with the Habsburgs, and so the Ottomans are now able to focus entirely on this front. So from 1607 to 1609, Ottoman forces initially focused on crushing revolts against them in Anatolia, killing tens of thousands of people there. But unsurprisingly, the Ottomans saw this as the first step towards fighting the Safavids, because inevitably their supply lines were going to pass through Anatolia. And we've seen for at least a century or two that the ottomans had problems with you know different ethnic and religious in the sense of different types of muslims groups in anatolia that kind of had this threat of rebellion that they they weren't likely to support the ottomans so the ottomans are constantly fighting them in this case they're basically turning to almost you could say ethnic cleansing i mean killing tens of thousands just to make sure that these people cannot rise up against them and challenge their supply lines while they're fighting the Safavids off to the east. Now, by 1610, the main Ottoman army was ready, those rebellions had been put down, and so they moved to engage the Safavids near Tabriz. But no major battle occurred. That winter, the Safavid Shah died, not a shock, he was in his 90s, which is amazing for the time, now, this death was opportune timing for the Ottomans because originally the Safavids were preparing to fight a major battle and to defeat the Ottomans in 1611, but the death of their shah made them willing to sue for peace. The Ottomans clearly didn't believe that they had the resources to press this small advantage, and so they agreed to peace. Now, the Treaty of Nasuh Pasha was signed in 1612 and saw the Ottomans surrender all the territories they had gained in the previous war against the Safavids, effectively returning the border to what it had been in 1555. It was a substantial territorial loss for the Ottomans, including Georgia, much of Armenia, Iraq, and lands in Persia. But the Safavids did agree to send them 59,000 kilos of silk every year as a kind of tribute. It was Okay, despite the tribute thing, it was the first time the Ottomans had lost territory in a treaty in over three centuries of Ottoman history. So anytime they've lost territory, it's been temporary, it's been in battles and in the middle of wars and things, but signing a treaty which formally recognizes territorial losses had never happened to them. Still, despite agreeing to the peace. Honestly, the Ottomans saw it more as a truce and were just as determined to regain these territories as the Safavids had been to regain them after their original loss in 1590. Honestly, it wasn't hard to find an excuse for war to resume as the Safavids ultimately never sent a single silk payment. And so by 1615, the Ottomans decided that, well, treaty's broken, war is back on. Around that time, the Ottomans were also in discussion with the Poles and the Moldavians about Cossack raids on their lands. The Poles claimed that these were not Cossacks living on their lands, but rather those living on lands controlled by Moscow. But, you know, I'm sure the Ottomans weren't terribly convinced by that and didn't much care, and so things escalated until, in 1617, the Ottomans sent a full army of 40,000 soldiers to deal with the problem. It met a small Polish force, and they decided to negotiate. Poland was fighting a war with both Moscow and Sweden, and the Ottomans were still fight- well, well, were fighting the Safavids again, and so, despite this major show of force, neither side was really interested in this war escalating and would rather just negotiate to end the raids. The resulting peace of Buja saw the Poles cede the fortress of Hotin to the Ottomans, Remember, that was like the critical fortress controlling northern Moldavia on the Polish border. And the Poles agreed not to meddle in Moldavia, Wallachia, or Transylvania. Win for the Ottomans, right? In addition, the Poles agreed to stop Cossack raids, provided the Ottomans stopped Tatar raids. Now, honestly, the raids on either side never really stopped. So that part of the treaty was a bust on both sides. But peace was achieved for now, and the Poles had agreed, I guess they had too much to bother with, the, with the Sweden and Moscow, they agreed to kind of step out of this part of the northern Balkans, central Europe, just leave it to the Ottomans. Meanwhile, back in the east, while the Ottomans had decided to start a war with the Safavids in 1615, it hadn't really started until 1616, giving the Safavids time to reinforce the new frontier. That the Ottoman army laid siege to Yerevan, capital of Armenia, and took heavy losses, being forced to withdraw by the fall. The Ottoman commander was replaced, and not much happened for the rest of the year until, uh, well, for that rest of that year and for the full year of 1617. We really tend to kind of find this that when it comes to these eastern wars with the Safavids, I think it's because the distances are so great, but you can go a whole year without much happening. But during 1616, elsewhere, That more peaceful Mediterranean, I mentioned, was getting a little less peaceful because, as I mentioned, privateering, which again, I'm not sure if I've explained what that is, but it's essentially you're a pirate, but you have official government permission to be a pirate. And this is still occurring. And a Spanish fleet off Cyprus was there to kind of combat it. You know, both sides, both the Spaniards and the Ottomans were engaged in privateering, and it really pissed off both sides. They were very annoyed by these pirates interrupting trade and military operations and all this. So although the Ottomans and the Spaniards were not technically at war, again, the privateering went on anyways, no one cared, and a small force of Spanish privateers had actually captured many Ottoman vessels and alarmed the Ottoman governor of Cyprus enough to call on the Ottoman navy to deal with them. Now, this Ottoman naval fleet outnumbered the Spanish seven to one. And the Spanish, well, they knew this Ottoman fleet was on the way and decided to wait for them off the Anatolian coast. When the two forces met, the first day was inconclusive, with the Spanish holding their ground. The Ottomans made a more concerted attempt to take the Spanish flagship the next day, but failed, as they couldn't really overcome intense musket fire from the Spanish ships. After a third day of intense Ottoman attacks, their renewed failure to really make any dent in the Spanish force convinced them to break off and retreat. It was a remarkable victory for the Spaniards. The Ottomans lost around 3,200 soldiers compared to just 93 Spaniards. In many ways, it was a repeat of the Battle of Cape Corvo, which I mentioned earlier in this episode, but on a much larger scale. Now, I did some digging. I couldn't find a really adequate explanation of just why the Ottoman navy was getting trounced by the Spaniards, but the more important broader point is that While the Ottomans are still a major power in the Mediterranean, their naval power is waning, even in the eastern Mediterranean, even off the coast of Cyprus, where previously, you know, with the failure of the siege of Malta in 1558, you know, the Ottomans failed to really make uh, that much kind of headway into the western Mediterranean, but the eastern Mediterranean was an Ottoman lake. But the Spaniards were clearly able to project power there now. Okay, though, back to the Safavid War. I left off mentioning that not much happened in 1617. Well, that was a bit of a lie because there was one major exception. Sultan Ahmed I, the Ottoman Sultan, died of typhus in November at the age of just 27 years old. Now, he'd only ruled for 14 years, but he'd done quite a bit. He'd constructed what we now know as the Blue Mosque across from the Hagia Sophia in what's now Istanbul, a remarkably beautiful building which... I always found this fascinating, despite being constructed about a millennium after the Hagia Sophia was still not as architecturally ambitious as its older Byzantine neighbor. It has these massive elephant columns which support its dome, and a dome which is actually covering a smaller space than the Hagia Sophia next to it. So, still, a remarkably beautiful building. So, as always, the death of a young sultan presents a major problem for the Ottomans. That tradition of placing sons around the empire as governors with the one closest to the capital being the heir apparent, well, that tradition is gone. And gone too was the tradition of killing all of the brothers of a new sultan to make sure none of them could overthrow the sultan. Now with Ahmed's death, there were many, many eligible princes and all of them lived in the palace. So you can see this is a very, very dangerous situation for an empire which is paranoid about civil war for good reason. Now, Ahmed had an eldest son, Osman. However, the boy was just 14 years old, and so, a powerful court faction decided to place Ahmed's brother Mustafa on the throne instead. It was the first time in Ottoman history a brother had been installed instead of a son. Thus, the 26-year-old became Sultan Mustafa I. The problem was, and this was raised by many who were overruled in making the decision, well, I'll let the Ottoman historian Ibrahim Pecevi put it this way, quote, This situation was seen by all men of the state and the people, and they understood that he was psychologically disturbed, end quote. So, that is, the new Sultan Mustafa was not quite right in the head. We don't know exactly what was wrong with him, but everyone agreed he was not the most mentally stable man. So, What's clear, though, is that this mentally unstable 26-year-old was really more of a puppet of powerful forces at court who had installed him. And four months and four days later, a different faction in the palace managed to successfully replace him with the still 14-year-old Osman, who now became Sultan Osman II. Needless to say, the boy had quite a name to live up to, and, well, he was in an awkward situation having just been installed to replace his uncle, who was not killed, Mustafa still alive, just off being mentally unstable somewhere else. Now, Osman, despite being 14 years old, well, he had big ambitions, and he wanted to start by winning the war against the Safavids. And to that end, he sent a 100,000-man army to invade Persia through Azerbaijan. But the Safavids learned of this plan and laid a trap. Now, the Ottoman army successfully took Tabriz, though it later had to be evacuated. And the Ottomans now demanded the return of the land that the Safavids had taken in the past 15 years, but the Safavids refused. And instead of engaging the Ottomans, they retreated, luring the Ottoman army further into their territory. Then, the Safavid army ambushed the Ottomans and won a complete victory. Still, the Ottomans weren't done. They sent a new commander and they kept pushing. They didn't want to lose this war. Particularly, that young Osman probably knew that if he lost this war, it could well, it could be very bad for him. He wasn't such a strong force on the throne. He didn't have a powerful faction at court that was really backing him for him. Uh, They just thought they could control him. And so, yeah, precarious situation. And so that new Ottoman commander got in there, pushed, 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 and convinced the Safavids to sue for peace. So there wasn't a big Ottoman victory, but they got peace. And so probably best for young Osman. The Treaty of Seraf was essentially the same as the previous treaty with some slight adjustments to the border and a halving of the amount of silk that the Ottomans were supposed to receive every year. So the war was over, and it confirmed once again that the problem with the Ottomans and the Safavids is that neither side was able to truly and resoundingly defeat the other. The best they could hope for is a balance of power that suited both sides. However, as this conflict was winding down, a far larger one was beginning in the West. That same year, 1618, the defenestration of Prague, a favorite historical event of anyone who loves the English word defenestrate, which literally only means throw a person out of a window. Well, and that's literally what happened. A Catholic priest was thrown out of a window in Prague. It happened twice. Google it. It's pretty fun. What's important for us is that this event kicked off the Thirty Years' War, an epic, continent-wide, you know, almost you know, European, continent-wide war between Catholics and Protestants. So this is going to be, obviously, a major event in this podcast. It's going to affect a lot of things. But at this moment, the young Sultan Osman went to war with Poland-Lithuania over their failure to stop the raids they had agreed to fa- stop in that previous treaty. And at this moment, the beginning of the war was set to benefit them anyways. Now, Gabriel Bethlin, their loyal vassal of the Ottomans and Prince of Transylvania, was convinced to join the Protestant side of the war, of the Thirty Years' War, despite Polish threats not to do so. It's a bit confusing. Thirty Years' War is starting. Gabriel's getting involved on the Protestant side. Poland is not involved in the Thirty Years' War formally, but they're sort of influencing things and they're going to war with the Ottomans. Lots happening. In the first full year of the war, 1619, Gabriel Bethlen invaded Habsburg-controlled Hungary and made quick gains. However, by the end of the year, he had failed to take Vienna and was defeated by a Habsburg army made up largely of Polish mercenaries. Again, Poland was technically neutral in the war, but had sent mercenaries to help the Catholic side. Around this time, the old and poor health, uh, Emperor Matthias, was pushed out and replaced as Holy Roman Emperor by his 40-year-old cousin, Ferdinand II. And, well, Matthias and his brothers all had no children, and so the kind of Habsburg throne went to a cousin instead of one of their children. Bethlen made peace with the new emperor in the first days of 1620, gaining 13 Hungarian counties, which, in effect, increased the size of the Ottoman realm because he was an Ottoman vassal. But months later, he was actually declaring himself king of Hungary, despite promising the Habsburgs that he wouldn't do so in a previous treaty, and this restarted the war. Because you could imagine, it's one thing for the Prince of Transylvania to take some Hungarian territory, but if he's actually going to declare a restarting of the Hungarian kingdom, that's a far bigger deal. At that same time, an Italian man named Gaspar Graziani had been put in charge of Moldavia by the Ottomans and, well, throwing around the right bribes, which as we know is now generally how you got control of one of those states. He pledged Well, despite pledging his loyalty to the Ottomans, he was actually spying for the Habsburgs. And in light of Gabriel Bethlen's losses from Transylvania, Gabriel decided to abandon the Ottomans and join Poland against them in the war. And he was now pushed to do this by the Habsburgs, who now had Polish backing. So everything is rearranging very quickly. And, well, it was convenient for the Poles to try to get the Ottomans out of the region for now, and to try to get the backing of Transylvania. And so we see the proper beginning of the Polish-Ottoman War, but it's a long episode, we're going to leave there, leave things there for now. So peace has come to the Safavid frontier, but Europe is about to see a war like nothing it has ever seen in its history. The Ottomans are suffering crippling losses in the Mediterranean, but well, it's possible they might be able to properly kind of take advantage of this huge Catholic-Protestant war. Maybe the Ottomans can get in there and you know pick the right sides and take advantage. But without a doubt, the biggest X factor in all this is Sultan Osman II. He's a young boy. What is he going to do? Well, for now, he's gathering his army, intending to fight Poland and support his Transylvanian vassal against the Habsburgs. Now, what remains to be seen is Can he do it? Listen next time to find out. This episode was written and produced by me, Eric Halsey. The theme music was written and performed by Teddy Raven. Check out the Bulgarian language version of the podcast at bghistorypodcast.com. And as always, consider pledging on uh, Patreon or sending us a donation via PayPal. Thanks so much to everyone who does, and see you next time.